And he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to tell you about uh, Anna May uh, Panici. Uh, Anna May uh, Panici. Uh, Anna May was born, um, born blind. Um, so f- um, for all her life, she had never seen colors. She had never seen light. She had never seen the faces of those that she loved the most in the world. Um, I just want you to imagine that for a moment, never seeing the faces of those uh, you love the most in the world. But that was until October 1981. And in, uh, she was uh, invited for surgery. She was referred and invited for surgery uh, by a famous doctor called Dr. Thomas uh, Petty, uh, who was a top, a top eye surgeon uh, with, uh, UC, in uh, UCLA, um, the Jules Stein Eye Institute. Uh, and he performed uh, what was a very, for him, a very basic, simple cataract removal operation. Uh, and for the first time in 62 years, her world, which had previously been total darkness, was flooded with light, flooded with colors. Uh, she was able to recognize the faces of those people she loved. Uh, some people she didn't know very well looked radically different to how she imagined them to be. Uh, and she went on to say this in, a, in an article in the Los Angeles Times that I came across this week where she said, everything is so much bigger and brighter than I ever imagined it, was, it would be. Um, she says, since, the, since that day, the day of her operation, uh, and when the bandages were taken off, uh, Mrs. Benici said that she can hardly wait to wake up in the morning, splash her eyes with water, put on her glasses, and enjoy uh, the changing colors of the morning light. After the operation, her eyes were so good, she could qualify for a driver's license. Uh, it's an amazing uh, that Dr. Petit said he'd never seen a case so successful, work so well. Uh, I just wonder what you think uh, if you had lost, if you've lost, I want you to imagine losing your sight and then having it restored again. What would be the thing that you would gaze upon first? What would be the thing you'd gaze upon first? Um, According to uh, that little story, having your sight restored is something almost indescribably wonderful, almost indescribably wonderful. And yet, according to this passage that we're going to look at this morning, according to this beatitude, there is something that is even more wonderful, and that is the privilege of seeing God. Uh, This morning, we come to the sixth of our beatitudes, uh, and it comes with a promise. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And as I hinted already, uh, the Beatitudes are uh, these eight characteristics that should increasingly mark out uh, followers of Jesus, members of his kingdom. Jesus is playing effectively at the beginning of this little sermon a spot the difference little game, uh, spotting the difference between the crowds uh, and the Christian. The crowds and the Christian, what makes them different? And uh, at surface glance, we look exactly the same as everybody else. At least most of us do. We look exactly the same as everybody else. Uh, And yet, for 
a true follower of the Lord Jesus, there's something on the inside that makes us radically different, a, a character. Uh, and Jesus describes these eight character traits that God blesses, that God approves of, he commends, he rewards, that will ultimately lead to our flourishing in the end. Maybe not always now, but in the end. Um, and we're going to look at the sixth one uh, this morning, and it comes with a promise. Uh, those who are pure in heart will be those who see God, be those who see God. What I want to do for the next few minutes is simply to look at the promise, to consider what it is and why it's so wonderful, and then to consider what does it mean to be pure in heart? What does it mean to be pure in heart? And uh, each one of those two words, pure in heart, is going to require a bit, of, a bit of hard thinking for us to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. But let me think first about this promise, uh, the promise uh, of seeing God. And in the Bible, this promise of seeing God, this idea, this language of seeing God, uh, has got at least a couple of different ideas connected with it. Uh, the first that I want to suggest is this idea that seeing God is being given entry into his presence, entry into his presence. So imagine going to the doctor, imagine you went to the doctor uh, and you wanted to get an appointment. So you go into the doctor's surgery, you go up to the receptionist and you say, uh, excuse me, in my case, I'd like to see Dr. Savage, please. Imagine at that moment, uh, the receptionist said, well, look, that's no problem, sure. Uh, there's a picture of Dr. Savage just over on the wall there with all the other partners in the practice. Like, that is not what you're asking, is it? You're not asking just to see a picture. You're not asking even to see them at a distance. Um, you want an appointment. You want to see them face-to-face, -face, interact with them, be in their presence. That's what you're asking for. Uh, and that's the idea in the Bible. To see God is not just to have something imprinted on your retina. Um, but to see God is to be permitted into his presence. And that language is used in the Old Testament. Um, seeing someone's face is to be permitted uh, into their presence. Uh, in the, again, a very famous story from the Old Testament, the story of how God rescued his people from Egypt uh, at the time of the, the, the Exodus. Uh, God sent 10 disasters upon Egypt to show the Egyptians his power and to uh, convince Pharaoh to release his people, the Israelites, from slavery. But after the ninth disaster, Pharaoh says these words. Pharaoh said to Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will never appear before you again. For a king to say, you will see my face, is to say, you will be permitted to come into my presence. And in the case of our God, it's, we will be permitted to have this face-to-face -face relationship and enjoy his presence. And so do you see how wonderful this promise Jesus is making is? You will not just have something, a sensation with your eyes, but you will have a relationship. You will know him and you will enjoy his presence. But there's a second idea. 
uh, about this language connected with this language of seeing God. Not only entry into his presence, but secondly, an experience of his grace. An experience of his grace. Uh, again and again, the, the psalm writers, or the, the songwriters of the songbook uh, of the Bible, uh, say again and again, God, do not hide your face from me. Uh, so famously, in Psalm 27, we read these words. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be gracious to me and answer, do not hide your face from me. And do you see the parallel? Not hiding your, not God, not hiding his face or seeing God's face means that God is gracious to you. To, ex- to see God's face means that you'll experience God's help and comfort. But to have God turn his face away from you would mean that you'd be dismayed. And so what Jesus is promising here uh, is uh, an experience that all who follow him might have in part now by faith and will one day experience fully in the age to come. So Paul can say, when he prays for the, the, the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter one, he can say, I pray that the eyes of your hearts are opened so that you see God. You can, we experience something of knowing God and experiencing his presence now, but one day what we experience by faith we will have by sight. We will see God uh, be invited to uh, and admitted into his presence uh, and to know and enjoy his presence forever. Uh, which is an experience of his grace. But notice how this little beatitude works. This wonderful promise, this wonderful promise, is only for those who are pure in heart. It's only for those who are pure in heart. And as I said, both these words, pure and heart, require further explanation. So I'm going to try to take each one in turn uh, for these next couple of minutes to try to unpack what Jesus is really saying. Let me take the heart first. First, the problem with our hearts. The problem with our hearts. When we use the word heart uh, in Western culture today, we normally mean one of two things. We normally mean either the physical pump that pumps blood around your body. Jesus is clearly not talking about all his followers having a very healthy cardiovascular system. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, which is good news for anyone here with a heart condition. Uh, but uh, the, the other way that we commonly use the word heart in Western culture is to talk about heart, heart being the center of your emotions. Okay? And so on Valentine's cards we write, I love you with all my heart. Okay? And we mean, it's, I, I, I feel it. I feel it. My love for you. But when the Bible, especially in Jewish thought, talks about the heart, they mean something broader than that. They mean something broader than that. Um, There's at least three different ideas connected with the word heart in the Bible. Uh, The first idea is that, overlapping with ourselves, that the heart can be used, this language of the heart can be used to speak about someone's emotions, Uh, And so if you read the story of Nehemiah, if you don't know about Nehemiah, it doesn't really matter. He was the the Jewish cupbearer to the Babylonian king. 
Uh, and the day after, he finds out that his capital city of his homeland lies in shame and ruins. Uh, we hear the king say this to him. Why does your face, Nehemiah, look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So heart does. It's where our emotions come from. Yeah. But it's more than that. Um, this language of the heart can also be used to describe our ability to reason and think. So there's a famous story about Jesus uh, healing the paralytic. Some of you might know it, where he's, the paralytic's there's a hole in the roof and he's lowered down by his four friends on a mat. Uh, Jesus heals him. Uh, and then we read these words, speaking to the religious leaders who are in the crowd. Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? So your heart is also where your thinking and your reasoning happens, not just your emotions. And then thirdly, this language of the heart can also be used to describe our will to choose. And so in Daniel chapter 1, when we, he's a Jewish boy transferred to a foreign land and he's given this food which has been sacrificed to idols. We read, Daniel resolved in his heart not to defile himself with the king's choice food. And so our ability to choose originates in our heart, in our heart. And so when you put those passages together, you begin to see that the heart uh, is really speaking about the control center of your whole being and your whole personality. Uh, it's the real you. It's um, the place in the secrecy of your own thoughts and emotions and ambitions and conscience. Uh, and um, it is who you really are. Your heart is who you really are. But as you read through the Bible, you begin to say that there is, see, there's a problem with our heart. There's a problem with who we are, right down at the core of our personality and the core of our being. Um, so Proverbs uh, chapter 20, verse 9, we read these words. Who can say, I have kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. Anyone able to say that? Anyone? Yeah, no problem. That's me. I have kept all of my thoughts, all of my desires, all of my ambitions, all of my emotions, perfectly pure and blameless. I've done that. No problem. I think if, you know, if you're at all self-aware, you know that that's not true of you, and it's certainly not true of me. Billy Graham put it like this uh, Our basic problem is not a race problem. Our basic problem uh, is not a poverty problem. Our basic problem is not a war problem. Our basic problem is a heart problem. We are broken. We are broken. Uh, 
the prophet, uh, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah would agree with Billy Graham. In fact, I suspect Billy Graham probably nicked that idea from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah because we read these words, the heart, each one of us, our whole personality, is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind and reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Three observations really quickly on 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 that little passage from Jeremiah. First idea is that our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are deceitful. If you listen to people again and again, whether it's from social media all the way through to Disney movies, you're going to hear phrases like this again and again. Be true to your heart. Follow your heart. According to Jeremiah, that is a really, really dumb idea. Don't, don't do that. Don't follow your heart. That would be, really, be self-destructive and crazy. Why? Because according to Jeremiah, our hearts, our ability to, to make decisions... Our conscience, our emotions, our ambitions, all of them are all twisted and corrupted and distorted. Which leads us, predisposes us in fact, to saying evil words and doing evil deeds. Now I appreciate in modern 21st century Northern Ireland, that is an unpopular thing to say. And perhaps some of you even here find that uh, an insulting thing for me to say. But again, I want to suggest, if you have read anything about human history, if you are at all self-aware, I think you can make a strong case that that is just an indisputable fact. An indisputable fact. We, like a broken shopping trolley, Yeah, we can do good things, but we are inclined to go off course and do what is evil and corrupt. Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are diseased, which is the phrase Jeremiah uses, beyond cure. Our hearts are diseased. Um, He's using this this language of of disease here, uh, expressing the idea that we are infected. We're infected. Uh, by selfishness and pride. And notice, if you go back actually to the the slide from Jeremiah, the the, the quote, um, Jeremiah chapter 17, I want you to see in the little verse 10, the little paragraph, the second paragraph, notice what your heart is connected to. Your heart is connected to your mind and your heart is connected to your conduct. Overflowing out of your heart is how you think. Overflowing out of your heart is what you do. And all of it is infected. All of it is infected by selfishness and pride. You see, evil, evil is not just something that's out there. It's out there in the big bad world. They're, they're lo- skulking in the darkness are evil people out there somewhere. No, no, according to the Bible, it's a much more uncomfortable message. The uncomfortable message is that evil is in here. And evil is in here. That's who we are. 
That's who we are. Our thinking, our feeling, our decision making, even our conscience is infected by selfishness and pride. Here's how Jesus put it in Mark chapter 7. Out of a person's heart, uh, it's out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Um, I've rediscovered, uh, I've just signed up for Amazon Prime and I've rediscovered old TV shows that I never got to see all of before. You know, you miss a few episodes, but they're all there. Uh, And one series that I've been enjoying again is House. I'm sure there's some people I've seen House in here. Uh, Brilliant show, I love it. Uh, Hugh Laurie plays the the title character, Gregory House. Uh, And it's a very formulaic episode. Every episode, uh, he gets referred. And his team of young, brilliant doctors, they get referred. This incredibly difficult case where there's a patient and it's some mysterious condition and it's life-threatening and everything they try to do makes the person worse. Uh, And it's brilliant to see a house interact with all the other people. He's brilliant, yet unconventional and completely antisocial and rude. Um, And yet, every week, they they work it out. They work it out. At the end of the episode, last 10 minutes, solution, resolution, brilliant, right? It's just... Comedy and uh, TV gold, right? Enjoy it. But if you watch lots of House, if you watch multiple series of House, you see that the show's actually really clever, and there's one question that drives the whole of the multiple series. And the big question is, will or can Gregory House change? If he has these particular people around him, uh, if he finds love, will, will he change? Will he become better? Because he is a broken man, a broken man. Not only is his leg broken and he's addicted to Vicodin, but he's, he's also selfish and cruel. Will he get better? And there's a few false dawns. He, he gets the girl and, and yet he throws it all away. And the fundamental answer of the the show house is no, no. He can't change. We ultimately can't change. And according to the Bible, that is half right. That is half right. Because left to ourselves, we cannot change. We cannot fix ourselves. Our hearts are beyond cure, beyond cure. Nothing we can do just like house. And yet, Jeremiah has found a real solution, real hope. Uh, And so later on in Jeremiah 17, down in verse 14, we read these words, Heal me, Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for you are the one I praise. You cannot heal yourself. You cannot fix yourself. That's impossible, but there is a healer out there. There is a healer out there. Um, in fact, his contemporary, Jeremiah's contemporary, uh, another prophet uh, called Ezekiel, who's uh, speaking God's words to the exiles over in Babylon, he explains what Jeremiah hints at in chapter 17. 
Speaking through uh, Ezekiel, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Naturally speaking, according to Ezekiel, we have a heart of stone, hard heart, a heart that is dead and unresponsive to God's voice. But God is so good and so powerful that he is going to give us as a free gift a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that is alive, a heart that is sensitive to his voice. New thoughts, new desires, new ambitions, new emotions, a whole new package. That's what is promised. The question then is, how do you get that? That sounds brilliant. How do I get that? I think we all have a longing to change, don't we? We've been thinking about that all year. We long to change. We don't want to be just the people we, with our same besetting faults. We want to become better. Ultimately, more like the Lord Jesus. How does that happen? And that all happens by remembering that this particular beatitude comes in a sequence. A sequence of beatitudes that all build on top of one another. How do we get this new heart How do we get this new heart? Well, number one, you get this new heart by coming to God and admitting that you are bankrupt spiritually before him. You've got nothing to offer him in return. You come to him and you mourn. You express genuine sorrow over the the cruel and deceitful words that you've spoken, the, the hurtful deeds that you've done, and the good things you've left undone. You express genuine sorrow and regret to him and you come meekly before him, come humbly before him asking for his forgiveness, trusting in the Lord Jesus. And when you do that, when you admit, when you ask, when you do that, we read these words in 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We will be given a new heart that is pure. When we admit our guilt, recognize we could never work for it, never earn it, never deserve it, but receive it as a gift purchased by the Lord Jesus for us, then we can be counted among the pure in heart. We too can have this promise that we will see God, be admitted into his presence, and experience his grace. The problem with our heart can be solved. But we can't stop there. If you'll indulge me another minute or two, uh, we need to take the final step, and that is the pathway to purity. Because at that point, we then need to do something. After you have received a new heart. Here's how uh, the writer of Proverbs put it. Proverbs 23 verse 19. Listen, my son, set your heart on the right path. Uh, I remember back to the days when you had analog TV and you needed to tune in each station. Anyone remember that? No? No, all denying it. That's fine. Uh, 
But even today, if you get a new car and a new radio, you've got to tune in each station, don't you? It is new, but it's got to be tuned in. Think of your, your new heart that God gives you when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus. It's a bit like that. It needs to be tuned in. It needs to be set on the right path. And so what then is the pathway to purity? And at this point, we need to explain what Jesus really is getting at with this word pure. What is he getting at with this word pure? I think for most of us, when you hear the word pure, you think sexual morality. I think that's what most people think. And so in America, people wear purity rings to show their chastity. And they're not having sex before they get married. Um, and we normally think purity is associated with sex. But, but here, uh, Jesus is talking about something broader than that. Broader than that. So I think we're meant to think pure gold. Pure gold. Pure gold isn't moral gold. It's this idea that it's 100% gold, unmixed by any other elements. Think pure water. It's 100% H2O and a few good vitamins and minerals. Uh, but it's got all the impurities taken out of it. It is unmixed. Get the idea? Jesus here then is talking about a pure heart. And by a pure heart, he means a heart that is undivided. A heart that has got a single-minded allegiance. Um, the opposite to uh, a pure heart isn't sexually immoral. The opposite to a pure heart is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Having a public face, but a private heart that is different. Jesus is picking up the language of uh, Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can see God, experience entry into God's presence? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Notice that having a pure heart means there's nothing false about you. There's nothing false. You're genuine and sincere. This is the, the challenge uh, that, and criti major criticism that Jesus had against the Pharisees, wasn't it? So later on in Matthew's gospel, uh, we read a big chapter full of Jesus calling out the impurity or the hypocrisy of the, the Pharisees. And so in chapter 23, uh, verse 25 and 27, we read these words, sharp, stinging words against the Pharisees. You hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inward are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. My followers... My disciples, those who receive the gift of a new heart that I give them, well, they're to cut that out. Their public face and private heart are to be the same. Are to be the same. That is how we are to be pure in heart. We are to those, be those people of integrity and consistency. Um... The Pharisees were one person on a, on a Sabbath, on a Sunday. It was all about God that day. But Monday to Saturday, well, it was, or in their case, 
Sunday to Friday was all about them. It's all about them. Jesus is saying, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Uh, I came across uh, this really old commentary uh, by a guy called uh, RVG Tasker, and he put it like this. The pure in heart are the single-minded who are free from the tyranny of a divided self. Pure in heart are the single-minded who are free from the tyranny of a divided self. And it is a tyranny when you are a hypocrite. Imagine the freedom, imagine the joy of having nothing to hide, nothing to explain, and nothing to defend. Wouldn't that be a lovely position to be in? Jesus is saying that is what you should pursue. That is what you should pursue. How do we do that? Practically, what does that look like? How is it just pull up my socks, grip my teeth and try harder? No, and here we come full circle. Here we come full circle. We will only become pure in heart, people of integrity and consistency when we have a clear vision of who God really is. Listen again to the Apostle John who in chapter 3 says this. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Uh, a few years ago, when I was at Theological College, I had the privilege uh, of spending an afternoon, uh, along with other students, but spending an afternoon with uh, Mark Ashton. Like Mark Ashton was the vicar in St. Andrew the Great, um, big evangelical church in uh, Cambridge, uh, evangelical Anglican church. Um, but just before I had the privilege of meeting him, uh, he went in for... Um, events this week reminded me of it. Uh, he went in for what he thought was routine a gallbladder surgery, uh, but actually when the doctor went in, uh, discovered inoperable cancer. Uh, when the oncologist saw him, he was given six months to live. And it was in that six-month period that he came to Oak Hill and spent an afternoon with the students. Uh, he spoke very honestly, painfully honestly, to be honest, uh, about his sadness for his family. Uh, he spoke of his fear about the process of dying and the pain. But he said this, and I'll never forget it. You probably feel pity for me, oh poor man. But he said, you should feel envy because I'm going to see Jesus before you. And then went on, and the rest of the afternoon went on to talk about how the, the awareness, this very crystal clear awareness that I am going to see Jesus very, very soon gave him a single-minded devotion to organize his day, to make the most of every minute to live and speak for the Lord Jesus. The reality is, for some of us it will be a little longer, for others it's a little shorter, but at the end of the day, we're all going to see Jesus very soon. Very soon. Imagine for a moment you received 
an inside piece of information that tomorrow was your last day. Imagine you were told that. Tomorrow's your last day. If you knew that, would you live this afternoon any different? For most of us, we'd have to say yes, isn't it? Wouldn't we? I'd live it different. I'd reorganize what I'd do. How do we become pure in heart? We foster, stir up the memory, remind ourselves of the reality that we're going to see Jesus very soon. We do that by reading his word every day, praying in Jesus' name, meeting with Jesus' people, reminding ourselves that we will gloriously see Jesus very soon. And when, you, when that is clear in your mind, it will, re, it will, it just cannot not, if you'll let me do the double negative, it cannot but reshape your priorities, give you a single-minded devotion to help you live and speak for him both in public in the same way you do in private. This is a wonderful promise. We can't fix ourselves, but we have been given the gift of a new heart, a pure heart. We can be counted among those people, the pure in heart. This promise can be your promise. And if you get that, grasp that, it will motivate you, will motivate me to live with single-minded devotion and integrity. Let's pray together.